My name is Kellen Curry, and scripture will be taken from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. While all this was happening, as crowds of thousands were gathering so pressed together that they were trampling each other, Jesus began to speak to his disciples. Watch yourselves, first of all, to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, I mean any hypocrisy. Nothing has been concealed that will not be revealed, nothing made secret that will not be made known. On the contrary, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the rooftops. I'm telling you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear the one who after the killing has authority to cast into Ganea. Yes, I'm telling you, that's the one you should fear. Is it not true that five sparrows are being sold for only a few dollars? And not a single one of them is overlooked before God. But for you, even the hairs on your head have all been counted. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now I'm telling you, everyone that acknowledges who I am before other humans, the son of the human will also acknowledge them before the angels of God. The one who denies who I am before other humans will be denied before the angels of God. Now any who will speak a word against the son of the, of the human, it will be forgiven. But to the one who has reviled against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now whenever they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you will make your defense or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will, will teach you at that very moment what you have to say. Then someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who appointed me judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them all, Watch out and be on guard against all desire for more. For a person's life does not flow from the things that belong to them, even when they are in abundance. So he told them a parable, saying, There was a certain rich man whose fields bore plentiful crops. Then he pondered to himself, What should I do? I do not have anywhere that I can gather all my crops. So he said, Here's what I'll do. I will tear down my storage barns and build bigger ones. And that is where I will gather all my wheat and other goods. Then I will say to my soul, Soul, you have plenty of good things laid in store for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be happy. But God said to him, You unthinking man, this night your soul is being demanded from you. Then all that you have prepared, to whom will it belong? That's how it is with the one who is treasuring wealth for himself, but is not rich in relation to God. Thank you. I hope you have a copy of the uh, notes for, for today. If you don't, raise your hand, and someone, I believe, from the back will, will bring you a copy. Um, has the text that you... Um, just heard read so, uh, so beautifully for us, and, um, and also notes that I'm going to be um, following as we go along in, in, in all of this. So. I want to thank all of you for your presence this morning, and just uh, appreciate so much just the, the beautiful work that the praise team has done, as well as those who, who came in to... to uh, help out when, when Emily was away, and uh, just uh, enriching our worship uh, together and gathering together. Uh, the, uh, I have a couple of things that I want to mention uh, here. One is beginning on November the 27th, we're going to start a new class that's going to be um, on the fourth floor at 9.30, uh, regular uh, uh, kind of a, a renewal of uh, the the class that has gone on for many many years there, on that on the fourth floor, 
and there will be coffee and there will be refreshments and so forth. The beginning focus that we're going to have starting there on November the 27th is going to be around the theme of, of Advent. And um, since that's the first Sunday of, of Advent, we're going to be reflecting on the together on the meaning of Jesus coming into the world, what it means for the word to become flesh, the long-expected Messiah, how long-expected Jesus who turns out to be much more and different from our expectations of the anointed king, and, um, and the way his birth, which is so celebrated for us, is also a sort of death. He empties himself. He is fully human, born to a young mother, but we discover that he's also the uh, God of grace, seeking us out, dying to be born among us, dying to give us resurrection life. And so I hope you'll come and just share in the reflections, discussions, op totally open discussions <clears throat> about some of the, the texts that that lead us to understand what it means for Jesus to come, come into our world. Next Sunday, as, uh, as Emily uh, mentioned, I just want to emphasize what she, she said, the, the remembrance and thanksgiving service. Uh, it is a wonderful service, so I hope that all of you, any of you who are new, will come and, and participate in that. It takes us also, uh, like I just was saying about that, reflecting about Jesus, into that intersection of death and life. It's a powerful space between our losses and our grief and our celebration of life and uh, sharing memories and building our building community of knowing each other through this, these experiences of all of that. So please uh, come and, uh, and share, <coughs> share in that time uh, next week. And of course, especially if you have memories to share of someone who, um, whom you've lost in this, in this last year, uh, do that. Remember also the, the Precious Kids Dinner uh, this evening. So, Well, the title of our, the message for today is, How Much Are You Worth? What's the answer to that? How much are you worth? <clears throat> Do you live from paycheck to paycheck? Did you win that lottery that was for $2 billion? Uh, if you did, raise your hand, please. Um, uh, I'd like to get to know you better. Um, <laughs> No, I think it happened somewhere in California that somebody uh, won that one. Uh, do you have the $44 billion that was necessary to buy Twitter <clears throat> and uh, all the adventures that have come out of all of that? How much are you worth? 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 And so the idea that we want to follow as we look at this scripture is how Jesus reflects on, on some of this. And picking up the theme that, um, <clears throat> that Julie emphasized in her communion meditation, that the way in which the light of God changes the way that we look at ourselves, at the world around us, at everything, and helps us to learn to live in, a, in that new world. Luke, as we've been following along with him, uh, with the story of Luke, as he tells us about Jesus, has just shown us the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and, and the experts in the law and all, and all of that. Those who follow the Torah who are rigorous in following it. And Jesus knows their serious application uh, of, the, uh, of the scriptures, of the law. But this, he sees also in his rather intense um, uh, Attack, one might say, his, certainly his intense challenge to them that the stress on detailed observance allows the visible piety that they practice so wonderfully and rigorously to hide an inner lack of a real relationship with God. And that's what he talks about, even, even a corruption uh, inside of a person. And certainly a lack of connection with God's self-giving love. As, as I've emphasized in talking about that last time, this is, Luke goes out of his way to make sure that we know that this is not the case with all of these people. In fact, he describes one of the experts in the law 
who talks about loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as, as yourself, and wants to apply that, the law of loving your neighbor, and, and inquires of Jesus how to know how to do that. But as, a, as part of Jesus' general critique, and, the, and that barrier that caused them to be in such opposition to Jesus, they want to bring God's kingdom by that rigorous life of Torah. They believe that if they do that, or if they do it, a remnant like themselves do it, then, that, then the kingdom of God might come. But Jesus is actually calling his disciples to begin living within that kingdom now, to live the values, the life of that kingdom here and now. And, and as he looks at them and critiques them, he does not see them living within that kingdom now. Our text, as it begins, and uh, you can uh, see it, follow it here on, the, on your sheet there, uh, is, uh, starts off, interestingly enough, with talking about the crowds. Huge crowds. Chapter 12, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 1. While all this was happening, as crowds of thousands, and by the way, that's, that's toning it down a bit. Actually, what Luke says is tens of thousands. Crowds of tens of thousands were gathering. So tens of thousands includes crowds of thousands. So, uh, they were gathering that so pressed together that they were trampling on each other. Jesus began to talk, to, to speak to his, his disciples. Jesus has these crowds flowing to him. So much so that it's getting dangerous to be around Jesus because you can get trampled. What does it say that so many people are coming to Jesus? These huge crowds are coming to him. Obviously, Jesus is very successful in, in drawing people together. Yeah, think about it in a lot of different ways. He's got all these resources. So many people are there with him wanting to touch him, wanting to have him as part of their lives and so forth. He can organize them. He can do a lot of things with them. He could uh, talk to his disciples about, it's really great that we have crowds of this size, but they're going to they're go away. We, we need to make sure that they keep coming. How do we, how do we please the crowds? How, how do we increase the crowds? How do we keep them coming uh, to us? And so on. But as you might imagine, Jesus doesn't. He begins teaching his disciples. And it's like there's a contrast. There's all of these crowds stretching out across the Mostly he had to be out in the, in the countryside in, the, at this, in this period as he's traveling from, uh, toward Jerusalem. And he would go into a town and so forth, but then move out into the countryside with his disciples and so forth. But he wants to especially teach his disciples the life of that new world that he saw that was not there for many of those who were leaders in the, the, the teaching of the Torah and teaching of the scriptures in, in his day. He wants them to know this new world of God's reality, of God's kingdom, and living that out every, every day. Now, we're still at a point at which they don't understand a lot of things about Jesus, as we've talked about so many times before, that they don't, don't know that Jesus is going to be crucified, even though he's told them that, uh, that that's going to happen. They don't understand about the resurrection, but even though he's told them about it, because these are just things that you don't know what to deal with, as Jesus says them. But... Jesus does try to help to prepare them so that when these things happen, they will have both the memory of his teaching and some understanding that can help them to understand what's at stake, what's going on, where are we going, what's happening in all of this. And so as I, at least as I analyze it, as we go into this, this text that we have before us here in the 12th chapter of, of the Gospel of Luke, these first 21 verses of it, Luke here draws together of Jesus teaching three basic elements of living in that light of God, if you will. This light that illuminates all of life that he had talked about in the text that we looked at last, uh, last week. Jesus in this text 
It's an interesting way, but so distinctly the way Jesus teaches. He uses vivid images, words, turns of phrase that, that become like parables for his disciples to, to, to deal with, to think about, to, to prick their minds and cause them to reflect on them. There, there's no philosophical language that's, that's here as he talks about these things, even though the issues that he's dealing with are deeply philosophical, theological issues that, that are fundamental. The, a human being in relationship to God and to the world and all of that. But he pulls us by his language into a perception. He wants us to see it rather than just to explain it to us. They could have asked maybe some questions and he could have given them some essays to write or written out some essays and give them to them to memorize, but he does not do any of that. Rather, there are these, like we saw, have seen before, these kind of wandering metaphors that interweave and, and move and challenge you to think again and again and again. And so as he leads them into this deeper understanding, he deals with what I would call three, three kinds of challenges. One is that of hypocrisy, verses one through three. And the opposite side of hypocrisy is authenticity, the, 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 the holding together of the inside and the outside of, of the human being. And the second that's in verses four through 12 is the issue of fear, fear, and fearlessness. Fear and fearlessness. How do they work? People are afraid. The most, so many of the people in the crowds have come because they're, they're dealing with some sort of sickness or injury or just mysterious malady that they don't know what to do, uh, how, to, how to handle it. And so they come, they've heard about Jesus, they come to see if there's anything that this person can do for them in, in helping them in this. And so to deal with that fear, but then the larger fears of life, verses 4 through 12. And then finally, the, the, going along with both of those is, what is life about? What's the, really the security of life? What's the real value of our lives? What's the meaning of our lives? How do we deal with, with that? And in all of these, Jesus leads them through these images that he teaches into all of it. And so Jesus starts with a warning about hypocrisy that connects back to, to the uh, Pharisees. Chapter, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, beginning in the middle of that first verse, Jesus began to teach his disciples, watch yourselves, first of all, to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. I mean any hypocrisy. Nothing's been concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing made secret that won't become known. On the contrary, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the rooftops. Um, sorry, I've got some little something that got in my eye, and so my eye is watering here. I just have to deal with it as we go along. Um, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Start warning about this hypocrisy, the leaven of the Pharisees, he calls it. It's not something that was taught, of course, by the Pharisees. They didn't teach hypocrisy. They don't think of themselves as being hypocrites by any means. And in certain ways, they, of course, they are not hypocrites. But he sees it as a hidden leaven that is underneath a lot of what they are doing. From their emphasis on the visible rigor and obedience to the law, to the things that he criticized about the, the experts in the law, the, the idea of kind of controlling access to God, having the key and taking it but not entering yourself and keeping others out. The desire for recognition that could be interpreted positively of wanting people to honor those who are rigorous in their obedience to the law, but also gets to be something of how I find the meaning and approval for my own life. And along with all of that goes this exclusivity that sees only the remnant who are rigorously obedient as, as really being important to God. They're the ones that will bring about the kingdom. But for Jesus, hypocrisy is a sure sign of not living in God's reality, not taking serious, uh, God seriously. It is that 
the kind of the characteristic that Jesus talked about is cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside of you is still full of all kinds of, of mess and so forth. Hmm. This leaven pervades. What's visible is what's important. What this this world what is this world is real and it's substantive, and I need to take that seriously. But what's unseen? Well, it's unseen. And it's less real. Certainly Jesus sees that, that they, that they can neglect the, the justice of God and the love of God. And so authenticity is broken. The unity of inside and outside are separated. And so Jesus says that if you want to live in God's reality, and the way in which he does this is not to explain to us all of it, but he just lays out all of these, these images that, uh, you know, just, just as you, you, you heard it there, anything that you say is public. I don't care if you were in a deep, dark closet and you whispered it in a, in a small voice into somebody's ear, it's going, it's going to be, it is now public. You live as though everything is all on the table and you live in that that honesty, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And so that kind of direct connection to reality is the, 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 the key thing. Everything is visible, nothing is hidden. So that the most inner secret is known. And when one lives with that vision of God's light illuminating everything, Wow, let's stop. <sighs> How many of us live this way? With absolute clarity about everything we do and never fudging anything. No secrets. That's the way it was with Jesus' disciples then, too. And it's all these crowds. But Jesus pushes. He knows that this is, this is that reality that is breaking in. They can transform these disciples' lives and the crowd's lives. And he knows it for us, too. So the, he keeps teaching it. How do I see that? How does that light shine into me so that I can realize it and, and live this way, the challenge of it? It's so easy to talk about. It's an interesting kind of way of phrasing things and so forth. But to live with that vision of God's light illuminating everything. Hmm. Wow. That's going to change my life. My way of thinking about myself. My way of thinking about you. My way of interacting with every single situation that I'm involved in. And so that's, see, that's where, he, where he starts, you know. Live that way. That's, that's, this, is, this is what it means to have God there in your, in your life, to live in the reality of God, not believing in God. He never criticizes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the, if even the Sadducees. Well, he comes close to criticizing the Sadducees about this, but certainly not the Pharisees, not the experts in the law, for not believing in God. They all certainly believe in God. But letting the reality of God actually be my reality and to live in that reality that's the great the great challenge and so then now he takes it another sort of step and he turns it toward fear and turns it toward anxiety and fear and anxiety and we're going to have more about that and uh, as we go on through more of Luke they are that second sign of not living in God's reality, not living in God's kingdom. It's hard to know exactly how to say that because he's not talking about these, them being excluded from God's kingdom, but the process of learning, of moving into this reality. He's certainly not excluding Peter and James and John because they don't do this yet. But he's wanting them to see it, wanting them to perceive it, wanting it to be their reality. And fear comes up in, in all of this, is, is that sign of not yet being there in that. 
and comes up again and again in Jesus' teaching. So Jesus starts from this intensely challenging statement. Just read chapter 12, verse 4. I'm telling you, my friends. Uh-oh, he called us friends. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. Ooh. Ah. Don't fear those who, that only kill the body. Really? Isn't that enough? Fear of death enslaves the world. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse, verse 15, when it talks about Jesus, that he came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. That fear of death is, is visceral. It, it's existential. The idea that death marks the end point of all life, even for many people in our world, all existence, that we live on that absolute limit. Death is that absolute limit, and it... Think about Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity that's translated in Ecclesiastes is the word vapor. And it talks about all the realities of life that we're involved in, all the stuff. And he says, death turns it into vapor. It makes it absurd as it's often thought in modern, more modern philosophy, the absurdity of life in the face of death. Vanity of vanity. Don't fear those that can kill the body, but after that, there's nothing more they can do. Hmm. Really? What, is, I mean, what are we talking about? Nothing more that they can do. Well, Jesus' response to that, that vanity, is, one might say, ironical and certainly puzzling. Chapter 12, verse 5. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after the killing, has authority to cast into Gehenna. Gehenna is often translated as hell, but it really talks about that image of the, the whole garbage dump of everything that is related to the, the big garbage dump that was just south of Jerusalem called the, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, the Gehenna, the land of Hinnom. Yes, I'm telling you, that's the one you should fear. <sighs> so don't fear those that kill the body but there's somebody even bigger that you should be afraid of. Isn't that just worse? Isn't it just more fear and worse fear? But then as he goes through that, as he has us look at that, it takes on a different shape. God's reality, perceiving that reality, removes the limit of death as the absolute limit of life. It is no longer that borderline that cannot be returned from it is it's there's added this unlimited fear of destruction in Gehenna but it also undermines the idea that our physical death is the limit of everything again is that writer of Ecclesiastes was plagued with feeling and he goes through it in great detail Physical death is bad, but God is beyond death, and so are you. God could make everything worse by destruction. Hmm. So if there's going to be something you fear, fear on that scale. But then that's where Jesus Images take another turn. But that very fear itself is undermined by God's own nature. 
Jesus talks about it. It's God's care, God's love, as we see it in so many places. Jesus insists that we see everyday things in this world with God's presence pervading them. Perception becomes a kind of parable of the reality of God's kingdom. This is chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Isn't it true that five sparrows are being sold for only a few dollars and not a single, the term there that's used is for a specific amount of money in, in, uh, in Greek and Roman terminology that would be about the, with the wages for a couple of hours' work. Uh, that five sparrows are being sold for only a few dollars and not a single one of them is overlooked before God. But for you, even the hairs of your head have all been counted. I've, I've been doing my part to reduce God's work as much as possible. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Sparrows were in cages in the marketplace in those days. They hardly cost enough to notice. But God's also there in that marketplace with every one of those cages. And God notices every bird. He cares even for the sparrows. He cares for every detail of life. He counts your worth, the sparrow's worth also, in his realm. Now, what's the least important thing about your body? Well, I would assert your hair is the least important. Sure, sure, you want it to look nice, but you also cut it and you throw it away. You, probably, I mean, some of you may treasure it all up, every single hair that's cut off your head. I doubt it, though. Living in God's kingdom reality recognizes that there's no limit to God's care. Counted hairs, Jesus uses that image, not counted hairs. Counted cells, counted molecules, everything exists because of God's creative love. You and every part of you and every part of every person that you see. So can we really take that in? Can we live within that? Only God is worthy of fear. Nothing else. No one else. And God cares for you extravagantly, unreasonably, so that he's counted your hairs. Jesus knows that sounds strange. That's the way he wants it to sound. He wants you to know that God is over the top as far as his care for every part of his creation, including me, including you. What's the result? Not, I'll show you who to fear, but don't be afraid, is what Jesus comes to. Don't be afraid at all. Live life without limits, even the limit of death, because all things and all time and all existence are pervaded by God's infinite, intimate care. Now, as it goes on, Jesus also spends out some of that fear. He knows that his disciples are going to face some difficult dangers that they're going to have to deal with. And they're, they're going to have to, to affirm in difficult and dangerous situations whether they know Jesus and know who he is and stand with him, whether they acknowledge Jesus and it's going to be under threat. And he talks about this being in synagogues and, in, and with, uh, before rulers and before authorities and so forth. Now, Jesus never says that the disciples won't suffer real punishment, even death. But notice what he says, verses 11 and 12. Now, whenever they bring you before the synagogue, the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious. This is that the fear has been changed. It's been transmuted because of we're living in that different reality. Don't 
be anxious about just how you'll make your defense or what you'll say. The thing is, you have God's own life living in you. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that very time what you have to say. And so that presence of God's own life is untouchable by whatever they do. Maybe they'll give you a slap on the wrist and send you home. Paul, when he were, whenever he was writing to the Philippians, he's sitting in prison and he doesn't know whether he's going to be executed or not executed, whether he's going to live for a couple more days or be sent, sent out free. He thinks things are going the way that he might get free. And he especially thinks that because he thinks he still has lots of work that God wants him to do. But he doesn't know. It could go either way. You live in, a, in an integrity that unites this world and the stuff in it, whether it's sparrows in the marketplace or sitting in prison with the possibility of execution, with God's realm, our inner life with the visible external life, and being true to that Holy Spirit. That's the source of your life in all of these things. The last section of our text begins when a man from these vast crowds interrupts Jesus. And he has a request, not to be healed or any of that. He wants Jesus to divide the inheritance between him and his brother. Now, we're, we're left to imagine the details, but it doesn't take much for us to fill in, you know, what might be going on. We can make up all kinds of details that we want. But obviously, there's some sort of amount of money or property or whatever it is that he wants to make sure he gets part of it. He feels that he's being unfairly treated or something like that. With his brother, he wants Jesus as a person of respect with crowds all around him who can enforce his whatever he says. He wants them to, um, him to step into this situation. Chapter 12, verses 13 through 15. Then someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's a little echo of, of uh, Mary and Martha, isn't it? With Martha going to Jesus saying, Tell, tell Mary to, to come and help me. Here it's a little bit more serious. See, be my judge in this, you know, in this uh, probate court and so forth. I want to have, have our own right here. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And Jesus, I take it, sort of reads what's going on for this person. And he doesn't say anything more to him specifically, but he turns and says to everybody that around that's heard this, and especially, of course, his disciples, watch out and be on your guard against all desire for more. And that word is, the word that's there in Greek is often translated as covetousness. And that's a nice heavy-duty word for it. But it means, the parts of it mean desire for more. Pleonexia is the term in, in Greek. For a person's life doesn't flow from the things that belong to them even when they're in abundance. The man wants to get the, his, his rightful share. He, he wants the security that that will give him, that the inheritance would, would help him with. And, and we can sympathize. You know, anybody that's close to retirement or has gone through retirement, you want that life security that can help you through that. But Jesus warns about this desire for more. And it's not because this man is necessarily rich or that there is a whole lot of property. There may have been, may not have been. But the desire can lodge in anyone, and it's nearly everywhere. I would be amazed if there's one heart in this room that is totally untouched by a desire for more. Raise your hand if you have no desire for more. I mean, our whole society, certainly our whole economy, is based on building up in the whole population a desire for more. That's what drives the economy in every way, that desire for more, and it keeps building things. 
But Jesus, hmm. It's, for Jesus, it's one of those things that most often breaks down really knowing God as the God of all of life. Now, you might think Jesus, knowing the scriptures and everything, would talk a lot about all the pagan idols that there were out there in the world, people that worshipped Zeus, the people that, especially that worshipped the emperor of all things, people that worshipped all kinds of gods. In all of Jesus' teaching, he never talks about worshiping other gods like Zeus and Dionysus and all of these things. He talks about that one universal idol that he calls mammon, more, stuff, the things we possess. Possessions, now what do possessions mean? They, they mean success, they mean power, they mean identity. They mean blessing. They mean control over circumstances. They mark the value of my life. I, I want them. I need them. But Jesus says, no. That's that limited link of this world that marks that one is not really illuminating and living in that realm of God. Oh, this is a hard sermon for me to take. Jesus then tells this proverbial story. It's an easy story, simple, about a rich farmer who has great success. Look at Rashid, chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. So he told them a parable, saying, there was a certain rich man whose fields bore plentiful crops. Nothing wrong with that. Not a thing. Then he pondered in himself, what should I do? I don't have anywhere that I can gather all my crops. And he takes a perfectly reasonable course of action. So he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my storage barns and build bigger ones. And that's where I'll gather all my wheat and other goods. Then I'll say to my, and the Greek word here is the one that we've seen many times, psuche, my soul. But it's also translated my life. Hmm, my self. Soul, you have plenty of good things laid in store for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink. Be happy. I love that song. Don't worry, be happy. Be happy. We even use that as a theme song in one of our retreats. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be happy. But God said to him, you unthinking man. This night, this is something God knows that he doesn't yet know, but will soon. Your soul is being demanded from you. Then all that you prepared, to whom will it belong? Jesus comments, that's how it is with those who are treasuring wealth for themselves, but aren't rich in relation to God. You almost don't need to explain this story, and I'm not going to go into it in great detail. It's simple. We can understand it without any difficulty. And we can see the turning points. It's pretty straightforward. He has this tremendous, these tremendous crops. He doesn't know what to do with it. He could make choices. He could choose when he doesn't have barns that could hold them. He could choose to be generous, to give them, give them to people that are around there, to help others. Ah, to help the neighbor, as Jesus talked with that expert in the law, that neighbor. But go to them and help them out. He could choose that generosity, but he decides to secure his own self, his own soul, his own life. For what he sees is many years of freedom to enjoy life. But then death strikes and reveals the absurdity of his decision to think that he can secure his future by this, this tactic. Now, this is an old, 
old story. This is not something that, you know, an idea that Jesus just came up with. The idea that, you know, death intervenes and it makes everything look differently. I, I especially love, uh, have taught about, taught classes here about Ecclesiastes, and I've mentioned it already a couple of times here, because so many of the themes are, are, are there. You have that, that, that story that's in Ecclesiastes, as the writer of Ecclesiastes takes the point of view of Solomon, the king, and meditates on the absurdity, the vanity of life. And there's a passage in Ecclesiastes 2 in which it kind of goes through this, but in a lot more, because it's this character of, the, of Solomon thinking about all the stuff that he's done. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Again, but again, this, he says, all of this was vanity. I said of laughter, it, it's mad, and pleasure. What use is it? But I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what, what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of provinces. I got singers, both men and women, the delight and delights of the flesh and many concubines, those concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Hmm, that is too much of a philosopher. He just needs to stop right there, but he doesn't. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what, what can the one do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly just as light excels darkness, but... The wise have eyes in their heads, but fools walk in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same fate befalls all of them. And I said to myself, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to myself that this also is vanity. I'm skipping down a little bit here. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity, vapor, and a chasing after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. It's the same ending, of course, as we have in, our, in the story that Jesus tells. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is, you know the word, vanity, vapor. Life turns out to be absurd within the framework in which he's thinking at that time. Jesus says that is true in the frame that he lived in, but it's not the frame of reality because it does not take that reality of God's love, God's care, God's kingdom into place. The success that he had was good. The enjoy, enjoyment is a good thing, whether it's for a king or for a farmer. But the more that he possessed became more real, whether it was for the farmer or the king, 
than the love of God and the call to love neighbors, which both the king and the farmer know. And this especially becomes clear as Jesus leads his disciples through it. We humans become blind, as he says, with an inner darkness. We're always vulnerable to it, that, that universal idol, the more. We want more, but more has no easy limit of enough. It never satisfies. Only living out the reality of God's love for us takes us into reality in all its fullness. Jesus is not calling his disciples to poverty. Let's all get poor so that we can be good. He wants us to recognize real reality and real wealth. There's one verse that I just loved from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul is talking about people thinking of helping the poor people in Corinth, helping the poor in Jerusalem. And he says to them, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, that although he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became impoverished. He became poor so that by his impoverishment, you may become poor. No, rich, that you may become rich. That's what this is about, not for us to become impoverished, not for us to become poor in any way, but to become truly rich. Jesus took on our impoverishment, our broken humanity, in order to give us that fearless joy with integrity that he's talked about to the disciples here, that delighting in God's gifts of his world. That loving our neighbor generously, sharing God's eternal life. How much are you worth? It's just simply a question of how rich are you with genuine, eternal riches. When our eyes are open to God's realm, to God's love, to God's reality seen in Jesus... There is no limit to that worth, to that life, to that delight. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask it again and again. Help us to listen to Jesus, to hear him. Open our hearts and our minds to see beyond just the things that we see to know your astonishing grace, your self-giving love, the riches that you have for us that Jesus comes to give, true, deep, eternal riches. Help us to live in that, in that wealth of your delight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand together as we close?